which was an incredible experience. And he's now at Fort Sam Houston training to be a paramedic with the National Guard, and then he'll be back here in Marietta to serve with the uh, Marietta unit of the Army National Guard. Our, our, our second son is Ben, and he's a freshman at Marietta High. And then uh, I've got a, a daughter, Elizabeth, who's a seventh grader at Marietta Middle. And uh, our youngest is Lily, who's a fifth grader at Burris. Um, David uh, was kind enough or foolish enough to ask me to bring the message today. And I'm going to let you decide uh, which one of the two those might be. But um, just to give you a, a little bit of background, um, it just hit me this past week as I was preparing that it was exactly one year ago. It was the very first Sunday in October of last year that was my last Sunday uh, serving a, a church, uh, Grace Bible Church in Lucas, Ohio. Uh, my family and I had been there for 18 years. And uh, it's really rare these days, as some of you may know, for uh, a, a person to have the opportunity to be at one church for that length of time. Um, it, it's also very rare to be able to leave after that length of time on extremely good terms. Uh, and we had the blessing of both of those. Um, but uh, since then, in just taking God's hand and letting him lead us into a new and, and really unknown adventure, uh, leaving the church without real clear answers as to why the Lord was leading us, but knowing that he was, um, you know, here we are. And um, uh, it's been wild and wonderful and uh, weird and uh, challenging. Uh, we've learned about Marietta that uh, you have folks that are deeply rooted here and multi-generational families that have been here in Marietta, and you've also got real newbies, you know, like us and, and everybody in between. And maybe a lot of you can understand what it's like to adjust to a, a totally different place. Uh, the church that we served was about 150 to 200 in, in a town of 750 people. Uh, and an, it had its own school system, which was absolutely amazing. But in that whole school system, from kindergarten through 12th grade, we had about 500 students. And uh, we lived walking distance from the school, and I lived across the parking lot from the church. And as you all know, Marriott is a little different than that. And it was rural and very blue-collar, and, and, and it was wonderful. But in, in the process of adjusting from there to here, um, it's been filled with a lot of challenges. And, um, you know, I think we're here a year in, maybe a little over a year, and our heads are still spinning, and we're still adjusting. And, and we have no idea how much longer it might take before we feel settled. Um, not that that's necessarily the goal, um, but... Um, but, but that's kind of where we are. And, and for me personally, all of this has exposed something interesting in me, something not unfamiliar to me. But, uh, you know, for all those 18 years in seminary before that and, and the wonderful things we got to, to do with the Lord and, and receive from the Lord there in Lucas, Ohio, um, uh, I realized that when I was there, there was just sort of these natural guardrails that God, God had kind of built in. You know, and every week, you know, just these anchors of preparing for teaching and preparing for messages and preparing for worship and, and just overseeing and ministry to people and, and, and seeking to be useful to the Lord and counsel and other things. It's just a, an interesting and unique environment to be in as a believer. But uh, coming here <laughs> and having all of that sort of change, it's been interesting. Um, and it's been particularly challenging to adjust to. But for me, what it's exposed is this. I don't like uncomfortable. I'm kind of anti-struggle. 
you know, anti-awkward. I'm more pro-pleasure, you know, pro-happy, pro-nice, pro-easy. Does anyone understand what I'm talking about? I mean, there's just something in me that wants the evidence of God's will and leading in my life to be blessing upon blessing rather than confusion and, and challenge and the unknown and all of those things. And maybe a lot of you get that and uh, a lot of you share that. Um, you probably also know that experientially it rarely works out that way. You know, for those of us that, you know, have had the blessing of just spending a lot of time in God's Word, it's really actually hard to find any examples of men or, or women or, or young people that lived the trouble-free life that we seem to all naturally kind of long for. It's, it's, it's impossible. Instead, we have example upon example of hardship and trial and challenge and difficulties and brokenness and suffering. It, it's all there. God doesn't hold anything back. He doesn't hide any of that. He doesn't candy-coated as, as we are so apt to do. Instead, he exposes it. He, he lays it out there for us. There's something that he's wanting to show us, something he's wanting to teach us. And, and here's the thing this morning about the message I believe God wants to bring to us, and it's this. It was no different for Jesus. You know, of all the examples we have in the Bible, Jesus is supreme. Amen? I mean, he is supreme. There is nothing, simple principle, there is nothing that you will ever experience that's on the negative end of the scale, nothing you will ever experience in terms of suffering or trial or negative feelings or discomfort or brokenness that Jesus has not experienced and gone through ahead of you. He knows the way, and his ways are perfect and I believe he wants to share some of those ways with you and me through his life. Not just through his example, although we're going to see that, but, but also to let you and me know that he has this for you. He has this for you. And these aren't just three steps, you know, to a better life. That if you'll just appropriate these truths and begin to practice them, you know, that, that it's all going to turn out so much better. What Jesus is saying is, as you've seen in me, I want to impart to you. Just like David's been teaching us, God is in the process now of pressing these truths into our hearts. It's not just propositional truth that surrounds us, rules and regs and steps to follow and all of that. It's not that any longer. Now in Christ and through the Holy Spirit, Jesus wants you and me to know this. He wants to, you to know that he didn't just die and give his life for you as a substitute, but he died to give his life to you through the Holy Spirit. And so what we're going to see in Christ are not steps. What we're going to see in Christ is a life and life responses that he has for you in your times of struggle and suffering, just like he experienced those struggles and suffering. Always get ready to look at God's word together. Would you pray with me as we just ask him to to oversee it all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the king. You are everything. You are our life, our redeemer, our, our friend. You are the one that the Father has given to redeem us, to pay the adoption price so that you could purchase us for yourself. And we are so grateful. 
Lord, show us what you want us to see and speak to us in a way that we can hear. And Lord, press into us by your word and your spirit this life, this life response, this glorious new and living way that you have for us when we go through times of discomfort and struggle and challenge. And I pray that through it, Lord, there might be many this morning that are encouraged and, and, and Lord, others who are, are freed this morning, healed and touched and raised up. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to John 13? Uh, we're going to look at just five verses, verses 1 through 5. And I think we're going to pop that up on the, on the wall. And something I'd love it if you do with me is let's read it together. Um, okay, ready? <laughs> it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You know, right in that first verse, something very interesting is said. It says that Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave the world. This time had come. And in the NIV, um, you might actually have a footnote written there. Actually, it's at that end of that first verse. But I want to explain. When it says, knew that the time had come, the literal word for the time that had come is this word hour. And the reason I want to emphasize that is because that word in the Greek, hour, his hour, the time had come, is, is emphasized in a huge way here in these last moments, really, of Jesus' life. And the reason that is important is because when Jesus refers to that hour, Jesus often refers to it as being the time of his greatest turmoil or the time of his greatest struggle. When he literally had gotten to a point as he was wrestling with the sin of the world which the Father was laying upon him and he was wrestling with the prospect of being separated from the Father as David has done a phenomenal job of helping us to, to conceive of. That that time for Jesus had created such pain and angst and brokenness in his heart that he was taken literally to the end of himself. In his humanity, he was being taken to the brink and beyond. I want you to turn back with me and just see one verse back in John 12. So just the, the previous chapter in verse 20, 27. I want you to listen here in this verse for Jesus using that term, the hour. This time has come for me. I'm in the midst of this time. He says this, verse 27, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Jesus says, no. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify 
your name. I think it's all too easy when we see Jesus say, my heart is troubled, to kind of minimize that. Because after all, he was Jesus. And we think, you know, how, how troubled could the eternal son of God really be? I mean, he's all powerful, right? He's, he's all God. Yes, he's all human. But I think in times like this, we tend to lean more toward the entirely God part. And, and we kind of think, well, you know, he was bothered. He was upset. He was uncomfortable. But one of the things that God wants to make crystal clear here is this word troubled means exactly what we just said it means. It means that he was experiencing a kind of pain and a kind of suffering inwardly that quite frankly, no matter what we go through in this life, I don't think we can completely understand. And and whereas Jesus says this, look, this is what's going on inside of me, but rather than asking God for an escape, Rather than asking him to open up, you know, a door for me to exit stage left, Jesus says, no, I realize that this is actually God's will. I came here to suffer. I came here not to go around this or to find an escape, but I came to go through this because this is God's purpose for me. This is the Father's purpose for me. But what's extremely interesting is this, and and, and bear with me, whereas Jesus says, what should I do? Should I ask God to save me? It would just be a little while later that Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and what does he do? That shows us the proof of the kind of pain and of the kind of suffering he was experiencing. At that point, it's not a rhetorical question anymore. At that point, in the Garden, Jesus does what? He asks the Father to save him from this pain. He says, Father, if it's possible, take this cup of suffering from me. And then one of the most powerful, transforming, amazing verses, and I think in the whole Bible, Jesus says, yet not my will, not what I want, but your will be done. You know, one of the most other amazing pieces of evidence that Jesus in his humanity was so far past anything that he could bear on his own apart from the Father's presence and the Spirit's power is as David mentioned before and brought out what was happening while he was speaking to the Father at that time in the garden. He was sweating droplets of blood. And if you've done any study on what must have been happening to his fully human body at that time. This was proof positive, God revealing to us. This was all and more that any person could ever bear. So here's the deal. In Jesus' time of greatest pain and struggle, how did he respond? What does our passage show us? What does God reveal to us about how Jesus dealt with his time of greatest suffering and what can we gather from that? So flip back, if you will, again to to John 13. And let's take a look together. The first thing that God shows us is this. His first response is found here. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, He now showed them, as the NIV says it, the full extent of his love. This is where we have the footnote. Many of you may have it. I have a little letter next to the end of that verse, and it points me to the bottom of my page. And and it says there's another rendering of that. 
And mine says this, having loved his own who were in the world, he now loved them to the end, or he loved them to the last. This is God's way of telling us that Jesus didn't just love his disciples when things were comfortable, when things were easy, when they were enjoying one another's company and traveling from place to place and you know, the weather was better and, and those types of things. But Jesus also loved them when it was really hard for him, when he was in the midst of his pain and his struggle, and it was, when it was the worst, Jesus did not stop responding in his suffering by loving, by loving. And one of the greatest examples we have of that is what he does at the end of this passage. The Bible says that Jesus, the very Son of God, takes off his outer cloak and wraps a towel around him, and one by one he gets upon his knees before his disciples and he washes their feet. But God holds us up there for a moment because he interjects right in the middle of our passage this information. He says, He says, The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I'm reading the Scripture, I hit these bits of information or, or, or pieces that just don't seem to quite fit. Why there? You know, why there is that interjected? Right in the middle of what seems to be a, another sort of message. And I think it's this. It's because, guess who else got their feet washed by Jesus. If you look a little bit further on, you'll see that who was still there? I mean, David said there was a point at which Judas left and he went to betray Jesus. But guess who was there right then? It was Judas. Jesus washed Judas' feet knowing, knowing that the devil had already entered Judas. The devil was in Jesus' band of brothers. He was in the inner circle at that point. And Jesus knelt down before him and washed his feet. I don't even know what to say about all of that, except to say that's radical. You know, for us, if, if ever there was a time when we felt like the enemy was in the camp, you know, and, and we were under attack, if ever there was a time we were going to ball our fists up and raise our defenses, you know, and fight back, in our own concept of what it means to fight back. It would have been a moment like that, but what does Jesus do? Jesus loves to the end. You know, rather than withdrawing, separating himself, rather than fighting back or fleeing, rather than any other kind of a coping mechanism, Jesus continues to engage. He continues to love. He continues to serve. He continues to the end even at his time of greatest struggle. The second thing that we see Jesus do, whereas there's this love response, which is an active response in his time of suffering, we also see his inward response. God opens that up and sheds light on it. The word says this, Jesus knew, verse 3, that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. In his time of greatest struggle, Jesus held on to these truths. Rather than let his feelings, rather than let his circumstances dictate to him 
what was true or how to interpret what was going on around him and inside of him. Instead, Jesus held fast to the truth of God, and it was this. He knew who he was, and he knew that nothing that he was feeling and nothing going on around him could change that because this was something that the Father had declared. Jesus was the eternal Son of God. And nothing going on around him was going to change that. He held fast to that. The second thing is he knew where he had come from. He was the eternal son of God. And he had come from the Father, and he knew where he was going. He knew that he would return to the Father. In between, there was something to be accomplished. On this day in John 13, it's Thursday. It's Thursday night. What did Jesus know on Thursday night? He was at the end of himself and beyond. Later on, the same evening, he would sweat droplets of blood and, and cry out for the Father to save him from this. But even so, what did Jesus hold on to? You've heard it before, and I'm really stealing it from a much better preaching minister than me. He knew Sunday was coming. He knew Sunday was coming. He knew where he was going. He knew what God the Father was going to do. For many of us, it's Thursday. For many of us, it's, it's Friday. For some of us, it's even Saturday. And you know, on Saturday, all things are dark and seem dead and over. God wants you to know that Sunday's coming. He wants you to remember who you are where you came from, and where you're going. Jesus gives himself to us as our supreme example, not just to give us steps, but to say, as, as it is for me, as it was for me, so I give to you. So I, I give to you. You know, I think in our honest moments, um, <laughs> at least I hope, that there are many of you who, who have this in common with me, and that is we all tend to struggle naturally, almost instantaneously with this anti-suffering response. I found that many folks that I've ministered with and among and to can spend their entire lives literally building their lives around this one goal, and that is to avoid as much suffering as I possibly can. And my goal is to build a life for myself that's as comfortable and easy as it can possibly be. I, there's something in us, I think in all of us, that on some level desires that, wants that. But what ends up happening is toward that end, to try to experience that goal, we adopt a long list of coping mechanisms to try to do it. We, we, we deny that we're struggling or we try to minimize it. Some of us uh, have the fight or flight response. You know, we just tuck tail and run, get as far away from that thing that's causing us trouble, or we ball up our fists and we try to fight back and destroy it. You know, for some of us, we've resigned ourselves to the fact that I just have to go through this and this is horrible and all that, and so we just try to escape. Even if it means just grabbing hold of something that helps us feel better for a little while. It might be something as simple as television or food. But then again, it might be something much, much more destructive, like drugs or alcohol or other kinds of escape. I mean, I, I think these kinds of experiences on some level are common 
to us all. One thing I want to make eminently clear, though, is this. I think one thing that that Christians try to do in order to achieve that, you know, put on the happy Christian face, is that for many there's this tendency to feel like I need to keep quiet about that. I need to keep that under wraps. But what's amazing about Christ, Christ never does that. You know, when he was troubled in spirit, you know, when he was troubled, even to the point of death, as he says in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he do? What was the, one of the very first things he did? He got it up and out. And not just before God in private prayer, but even before his disciples. Earlier on, that the passage in John 12, 27, he's speaking to a huge multitude. People that don't even know him, and the the scriptures say it was a mixed crowd, Jew and Gentile alike, and he says to the whole crowd, my heart is troubled within me. He was honest and open about his struggle. He didn't try to hide it from God or from anyone else, and he definitely didn't just try to take matters into his own hands and, and just cope with it. He opened up about it, and and I just want us to realize this morning, God in no way desires that we gut it out or suck it up or any of the other things that we might have heard growing up from those that were well-meaning but were giving us very, very unhelpful information. What the Lord wants us to embrace this morning, and really in doing so, we embrace Him. In doing so, we align our lives with the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our day. Because again, he wants to impart this to us. Not just give us instruction, but give us himself. And to have his victory in his time of greatest struggle, have his conquering rather than his coping, be yours. He wants to be yours. And so, in what way does he want that to, to occur? How do we align ourselves with the Holy Spirit? It, it's simple. We've heard it, but let's just touch on it one more time. Number one, in your time of greatest struggle, do not settle for coping. Tune in to your coping mechanisms. Make a list of them. The next time that you get hit with with something that really knocks you for a loop, go into a little period of prayerful self-examination. What when you get squeezed, what comes out, you know, as we've been talking about. Tune into that. Give that over to the Lord and ask Him to replace that with Himself. Because one of the first things God wants to do is this. I'll just use myself as an example. When I struggle most deeply, and, and, and for me this is a, a, a typical guy thing. Yes, you know, a lot of it is the way I was raised and a lot of the messages that I heard. Uh, but it was this idea that, that, that when I get hit, I've got to handle that. You know, I've got to, to take care of that. And, and in order to do that, I kind of become consumed on the problem. I become consumed on what I identify as the enemy, and I kind of go to war. But in the process of doing that, I disengage from everybody around me. Maybe some of you can relate to that. I disengage from my wife. I disengage from my children. I disengage from God. All in an effort to try to conquer the enemy. Now, that's just one of many responses that folks have, but that's my tendency in those times. But what the Lord says to me and what the Lord says to us is no. No, in the times of your greatest struggle, we need to love to the end. That's God's way of saying engage. 
in your time of struggle, engage with me, God says. Engage with your wife. Engage with your kids. Resist the temptation to isolate. Resist the temptation to give in to self-pity. Resist the temptation to strategize and come up with all kinds of battle plans to defeat the perceived enemy. Instead, keep on loving. Loving those I've given to you, the Lord says. Engaging with those I've given to you. And see what He will do. See how He will meet you there. It's, it's counterintuitive for us. But so much of walking by the Spirit is just that. It's counterintuitive. The second thing is this, that, that inward focus. And the inward focus is this. If you are a child of God, you are a son of God, a daughter of the Lord. And He doesn't ever want you to forget that. And He doesn't ever want you to buy into the idea that there's anything that can change that. And He definitely doesn't want you to allow your feelings or your circumstances to dictate to you what's true. To dictate to you what is true. If God has declared you to be a son or daughter of God, I'm here with some good news. Nothing and no one can change that. Hold fast to who you are and remember where you come from and remember where you're going. It might be Thursday or Friday or Saturday right now, but Sunday is definitely coming. You can bank on that. You can bank on that, and the Lord will see you through. There are a ton of of better examples maybe that I could give, you know, just something to think about as we go home together. But how many of you have heard of John Wesley or Charles, his brother, a few of you? Yeah, and I, I've, I've learned through David. David has got some Wesleyan roots in his background, and, and maybe some of you all do too. Um, but John Wesley, great man of God, preacher, teacher, uh, with his brother, hymn writer, a man mightily used of God. He used to keep a diary of his entire ministry and every place that he went. And I just want to share with you just a few entries or successive entries that he he put in there um, that it might encourage us a little bit. It says, Sunday a.m., May the 5th, John Wesley writes, I preached in St. Anne's. I was asked to not come back anymore. Sunday p.m., May the 5th, preached in St. John's. Deacons said, get out and stay out. Sunday a.m. May the 12th, preached in St. Jude's. Can't go back there either. Sunday a.m. May the 19th, preached in St. Somebody Else's. Deacons called special meeting and said, I couldn't return. Sunday p.m. May the 19th, preached on the street, kicked off the street. Sunday a.m. May the 26th, preached in a meadow chased out of the meadow as a bull was turned loose during the service. Sunday a.m. June the 2nd, preached out at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. Sunday p.m. June the 2nd, afternoon, preached in another pasture. 10,000 people came out to hear me. Thousands more received the Lord. It may be Thursday, but Sunday's coming. As much as we want a way around or over or under or away, God has a way through, through Christ and His Spirit. And He has that for you. 
no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, no matter how you're interpreting that, feeling about it, or thinking about it. He wants to hold you tight, and he wants to hold you to hold tightly to him. And these are some of the ways he's given us to experience that, to do that, to experience him. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for who you are and what you've accomplished. Lord, in this moment, no matter where each of these beloved men and women and boys and girls are in their life with you, help them to believe and to receive the truth this morning by the impartation, Lord, and ministry of your Spirit. That, Lord Jesus, you've gone before us. There is absolutely nothing that we will feel or experience or face that you have not already faced ahead of us and found the way through. And you're on the other side with your hand outstretched, calling us by name. Trust me, follow me. Here's the way, the better way. Lord, help us to be free of being copers. And help us instead, Lord, to be conquerors through you. Lord, if there's anyone here that's in the need of your touch, that needs to get it up and out before you, I pray they'd be free to come as the ministry teams come forward, Lord, to pray. Lord, if there's someone here this morning that has had a hard time hearing any of this because they're struggling so much with maybe even something unrelated, may they be free, Lord, to come as we draw near to you and worship. And Lord, just have your way here. Minister as only you can as we, uh, as we move into this time with you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. Thank you so much, Lord, for what you are doing here at Stonebridge Church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, y'all can stand. Um, prayer teams, if you would, come forward.